Well, if you have a Bible with you, I want you to turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And uh, capitalize on some of Brandon's comments about, if you're not a parent, I, I, I get it that the tendency would be, I'm not coming <laughs> uh, during these five weeks. But here's the thing. First of all, especially for you uh, younger people, uh, and that means anybody under 40, uh, if, even if you're not married, uh, you might be one day. Uh, even if you're married and don't have children now, you might have one day. Um, and I could tell you of some couples I know, and they got married in their 40s, never been married. And uh, even though couldn't have biological children or didn't want to take that risk, ended up adopting children. And so <clears throat> you don't know what your future holds. And here's, here's what I've observed over the years, is that most of us who be eventually become parents Start working on that about the time we bring the baby home. So you may be able to pick up some tips along the way. You want to throw back here in the back of your uh, uh, storage cabinet for use down the road. And the other piece is, even if you never get married, never become a parent, some of the things that uh, hopefully God's laying out these days will be things that help you be an ally to other parents you do know. So if you have nieces and nephews, uh, to cooperate with their parents instead of uh, go against their parents, put it that way. Um, my son had called me out here a number of years ago when we had been babysitting for their kids and something happened uh, that night that we didn't feel the need to tell mom and dad about. But it came out eventually, and then my son said, you know, we really need to know that stuff because we're trying to do this and do that and realize I wasn't an ally to him as a parent, uh, them as parents through that. And so some of these things uh, hopefully will help you uh, if your grandparents, uh, if your aunts, uncles, or if you have kids in the neighborhood, that you can be cooperating with the parents to be a blessing to them and rather than undermining what God's asking them to do. Um, this is back in the day, the story I'm going to tell you is back in the day when there were no cell phones, there was no social media. No, it wasn't the 1800s. Um, I was in my last uh, semester at seminary. We were living, living north of Chicago, Illinois. But uh, even though we had no system like that, word got around very quickly that there was a tornado headed our direction. And um, Illinois is part of, part of Illinois is part of the tornado alley. And just a year before that, there had been a massive tornado hit about an hour south of us, had taken 29 lives, sent over 300 people to the hospital. It was a really bad one. And so everybody knows in the Midwest, tornadoes, nothing to toy with. So... Uh, we lived on campus, um, on campus housing and apartments, and everybody went down to the basement for shelter. And as I looked around there, I'm counting noses, and there's one missing from our family. Uh, Travis was 11 at that time, and uh, so the best way to cover campus is get on my bicycle, which I did, and I pedaled all over campus, and it was, it was eerie. Uh, this is a campus of about 2,200 students, grad school and liberal arts, four-year college. And there was nobody. Missing the middle of the day. Nobody anywhere around. Everybody had uh, gone to ground, shelter. And the sky is that kind of strange gray, green color. 
before a tornado, there's, there's no wind, everything's very still. And I'm riding all over campus screaming his name at the top of my lungs, Travis, Travis. I went everywhere that I thought he and his buddy might have gone. They spent a lot of time roaming and exploring the campus. Um, wasn't there. I checked places. I hoped he wasn't. Checked the pond, drainage ditches. And I, I couldn't find him. And I knew I was running out of time. And so I raced back to the apartments hoping to find some people that will help me search for him. And I remember the, the overwhelming sense of panic uh, rising in my throat. I was pedaling so fast that my feet were slipping off the pedals. I just couldn't get there fast enough to try to get some help. Dropped my uh, bike, ran down to the basement, and there he was. And probably if you're a parent if, of, for any length of time, you've had some kind of crisis moment like that where, where you were fearful for what was going to happen or was happening to a child and you realize in that moment you love them so much that you would gladly exchange your life for theirs and I was so glad Travis showed up because just a few minutes later that tornado hit about eight miles south of us uh, hit the Chicago executive airport threw planes this way and that, slammed them up against buildings, flipped them over. Uh, it wasn't one of the massive ones, but it was enough that you don't want your child to be out in it. You know, loving our children and be willing, being willing to do anything for them, even give our lives for them, that, that can be good. But did you ever think about it? It could also be bad. That there's a kind of deep love like that for our children that can be sinister and dark. And I'm not talking about a kind of love that's, a, you know, love that's abusive and dysfunctional. That's not what I mean. But where we have the kind of love for our children that makes us unwilling to buck them and resist them and push back against what they want makes us unwilling to do what we might know God wants us to do with them, to say what we know God wants us to say to them because we simply can't make them unhappy. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which I'll quote a number of times this morning, says anything can serve as a counterfeit God or idol, especially the very best things in life. Let me read that again. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God or a competitor, we could say, a competitor to the true and living God, especially the very best things in life. So you think about what is best in your life. Any of those things, any of those people could serve as a substitute God. Ministry can be a substitute God. Career, spouse, and yes, even a child. And so we run the risk, if we have this kind of sinister and dark love, we run the risk of, instead of making them the worshipers that we talked about last week, trying to help them become the worshipers of God, that we end up worshiping them itself. So we're going to read a story about a man named Eli in 1 Samuel 2. We start at verse 12. Uh, this story runs chapter 2, chapter 3, uh, even into chapter 4. 
uh, or no, I guess just the end of chapter three. I'm not gonna read those whole chapters. We'll, we'll just do selected verses, starting in verse 12, chapter two. Now the sons of Eli were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord or for their duties as priests. So these are adults. And in some ways, maybe that doesn't translate completely, excuse me, to our um, conversation about younger children, but I think it will still be applicable. Whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, Eli's sons would send over a servant with a three-pronged fork. While the meat of the sacrificed animal was still boiling, the servant would stick the fork into the pot and demand that whatever it brought up be given to Eli's sons. Now, just for clarity's sake, the sacrifices that were made by ancient Israel, the sheep and the bulls and the goats that were offered up, they were offered to pay for the sins of the people, but the, some of the meat was given to the priests for their own use. So that was fitting, that was appropriate. All the Israelites who came to worship at Shiloh were treated this way. Sometimes the servant would come even before the animal's fat had been burned on the altar. And that was a no-no. Fat had to be burned before the priest could get the meat. This servant would demand raw meat before it had been boiled so that it could be used for roasting. They want to have a barbecue. The man offering the sacrifice might reply, well, take as much as you want, but the fat must be burned first. And so this, then the servant would demand, no, give it to me now or I'll take it by force. So the sin of these young men was very serious in the Lord's sight, for they treated the Lord's offerings with contempt. But Samuel, oh, I'm going to skip that. Let's go back down to verse 22. Now Eli was very old, but he was aware of what his sins were doing to the people of Israel. He knew, for instance that his sons were seducing the young women who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. Eli said to them, I've been hearing reports from all the people about the wicked things that you are doing. Why do you keep sinning? You must stop, my sons. The reports I hear among the Lord's people are not good. If someone sins against another person, God can mediate for the guilty party. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede? But Eli's sons wouldn't listen to their father, for the Lord was already planning to put them to death. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew taller and grew in favor with the Lord and with the people. Now, if, if you know something about the life of Samuel, know that Samuel was a surprise to his mom. She had been unable to have children, and she prayed and cried out to the Lord, pleading with him to give her a son, saying that if you do, I'll give him back to you to serve you all the days of his life. And that's exactly what happened. She gave birth to this little boy. She took him up to the tabernacle when he, when he was no longer being nursed and he helped Eli with the responsibilities around the tabernacle. Verse 27. One day a man of God came to Eli and gave him this message from the Lord. I revealed myself to your ancestors when they were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. I chose your ancestor Aaron from among all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense, to wear the priestly vest as he served me. And I assigned the sacrificial offerings to you priests. So why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings? And this next line is the main line in this entire story that you need to remember. Why do you give your sons more honor than you give me? For you have become fat, you and they 
have become fat from the best offerings of my people Israel. Now chapter 3, verse 11. And again, just the story that takes place in between here. Samuel hears a call one night of his name, Samuel. Thinking it's Eli, he goes to his bedroom and says, what do you want? I didn't call you, goes back to bed. Samuel, this happens three times. And finally, Eli on the third time start putting two and two together. He says, go back to bed. And this time, when you hear your name called, if you hear it called again, say, uh, speak, Lord, your servant's listening to you. And that's what happened. And God now has a message for Samuel about Eli. Verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am about to do a shocking thing in Israel. I am going to carry out all my threats against Eli and his family from beginning to end. I have warned him that judgment is coming upon his family forever because his sons are blaspheming God and he hasn't disciplined them. And so I have vowed that the sins of Eli and his sons will never be given, forgiven by sacrifices or offerings. Father, we come to you as the only wise, only perfect father who has ever lived. The one, that we go, the one that we can go to knowing that we are going to find wisdom, we are going to find uh, good counsel, we're going to find not just someone who did a pretty good job as a father, but someone who did a perfect job as a father. And yet by the definition and description of outsiders, you would be harshly critiqued by some. Because after all, you did not spare your own son, but graciously gave him up for us all. You not only permitted your son to be cruelly tortured and then executed on a cross, but you even assigned him that task and that role. And so where where better could we go to find out how to be good parents and to find out how to love our children in a way that's not idolatrous. Teach us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit and by your Holy Word this morning, teach us something about caution and something about true love for your glory and for the sake of our children. Jesus' name, amen. If we are would to go to the law of Moses in the book of Exodus and recite the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not lie, you shall not covet your neighbor's Camaro. Of all of those, the first one would go like this you shall have no other gods before me nothing else should matter more to you nothing else should be treasured more by you nothing else should be loved more than me and here's a man who is the high priest over Israel he has two sons serving as priests and they are bringing into disrepute not only the law 
but the God of the law. I have a question to ask you this morning. Two questions to ask you. First of all, does your child, parents, does your child matter too much? Do your children matter too much? Here are these priestly sons. They have been given spiritual responsibility and authority over Israel. And their claim to fame is that they're sleeping with the women at the door of the tabernacle, not sleeping there with them, but these women who serve at the door of the tabernacle, they're sleeping with them. And we don't even know whether or not this is a consensual sexual relationship. Very patriarchal society, women had very little say in anything, and so it well may have been that these men were actually raping these women. And they are taking the food that is the, listen, think about this. The sheep and the bulls and the goats and the turtle doves that were brought down to the tabernacle by the people were the precursors to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these animals were being used by the Israelites to atone for their sins. And in this way, God is teaching the Israelites that blood must be shed in order for your sins to be resolved. And they're treating it as if it was meat purchased at Costco for a cookout. Listen to this word from Numbers chapter 18, where God speaks to the descendants of Aaron who serve as the priests. Very last sentence of Numbers 18. But be careful to treat the holy gifts, these are sacrifices, treat the holy gifts of the people of Israel as though, I'm sorry, be careful not to treat the holy gifts of the people of Israel as though they were common, as though they were Costco meat. If you do, priests, you will die. This is not an insignificant offense against God. This is a very big deal. These were the sins, at least that are mentioned, of, of Eli's sons. And so God says to him in 2.29, why do you honor me, honor them more than you honor me? And, and we don't, it, it seems curious to us, at least at a first read, that God would be so harsh with Eli when after all, Eli did have conversations with his son, right? Sons. Chapter 2, verse 23, he, he talks to them about the things that they've been doing. Let me read it though the way I think Eli might have said it. I've been hearing reports from all the people about the wicked things you're doing. Why do you keep sinning? You must stop, my sons. The reports I hear among the Lord's people, they're not good. This is the father. And you, again, patriarchal society, the dad has a ton of clout. Not only is he the father, though, he's also the high priest over all Israel. He is the, the pope of all of Israel. And if he so chose, his sons as priests would be out like that. Do you see what I'm saying? He's saying, not good what you're doing, boys, but there's no teeth. He's not doing what God wants him to do. He's not doing what God's calling him to do. Why? Well, we don't know his ultimate motives. 
But we know God's saying, you are honoring them more than you are honoring me. In other words, there is someone who is coming ahead of me whom you are more concerned about than me. Idolatry. Two points under this question, does your child matter too much? The first one is that saying yes to God sometimes means saying no to children. Saying yes to God sometimes means saying no to your children. And I know we touched on this last week. I know there's some kinds of parenting that now counsel you you're not to say no to your child. And we can't go that direction according to how God parents his children because he tells us no plenty of times. Proverbs chapter 23, we'll probably touch on this in a couple of weeks when we have the final message and it's on discipline. Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14, talk about discipline. And the first line, there's four lines in that text and the first line says, says this, that parents, you should discipline your children. And then the very line says, the very last line says, don't be a party to their death or to their destruction. And the message that God gives parents in there is this, that if you neglect to discipline your child, you may well be contributing to their destruction. Whether it's actual physical death, spiritual death, uh, whatever, all kinds of bad things can come out of this is God's, God's point. Saying yes to God sometimes means saying no to children. So I, I'm just gonna give some examples, I think, uh, as I reflect back on our own years of parenting, as I see into families' lives, um, what some of those no's might look like. Again, we're gonna get to the discipline piece uh, in, in November, uh, but we're talking about what's our, what direction are we going? In other words, what do we wanna try to accomplish? Then discipline is the application of, or the enforcement of those uh, hoped for outcomes. First of all, If we're going to say yes to God, one of the no's that we're going to say to our children is, no, you can't just obey if and when you feel like it. No, you can't just obey if and when you feel like it. Two, what we talked about mostly last week, no, we are not going to permit disrespect in our home. You cannot speak to your mother, you cannot speak to your father that way. Now, as our kids get a little bit older, um, and just for the record, our, all of our children played sports too, so this is not an uh, anti-sports kick, but we're also going to say as parents, no, you can't take on too many extracurricular activities. Um, raise your hand here if you have more than 168 hours a week to work with. Is there anybody here that has 172, say? 180? Anybody here? Anybody like that many hours? We all have 168 hours, which means we have a finite number of hours in which to do all that we do. And every time we say yes to something else, we unavoidably say no to something else. And so as parents, it's not that you want to deprive your children of opportunities, adventures, and experiences, but you also know that they can't do everything. And especially as a parent who is trying to not simply um, uh, create a child that's going to make, make it in a D2 school, 
but somebody who's going to worship God through the Lord Jesus Christ, that means we want to be careful that we're not taking them out of things that are really important for them to grow up and love the Lord to do. So we're going to say as parents, can't take on too many extracurriculars. We're going to say you can't go wherever with whomever. And you say, I I want to go to a party. Uh, Say you're 15 years old. I want to go to a party. Well, where's the party at? Well, it's at Caitlin's house. Okay, I don't know who Caitlin is. Well, she's a friend I've made in the last couple of months. I really like her and she's having a party. And um, okay, are her parents going to be home? Uh, I, I don't know. Okay, well, I'm going to call and find out what kind of supervision is going to be happening, and I'm going to call and find out what kind of events are going to take place. Dad, you wouldn't do that, would you? Uh Uh-huh. Dad, I'm trying to fit in. You wouldn't. It's probably Mom. Mom, you wouldn't do this to me, would you? I I, I need to fit in. I don't. Fitting in is not my most important priority for you. It might be for you, but I love God more than I love that you want to fit in. And so I'm going to make that phone call and I'm going to find out whether or not there's going to be an adult there, what kind of adult's going to be there, what kind of activities are going to take place. I love God in that instance. For you to understand, I love God more than I love you and what you want. Now, they probably shouldn't use that language with them. They're not going to be able to understand it. But just to say, I love God most, okay? I love God most. And so this is why I'm going to make this phone call. Can't go wherever with whomever without parents doing some work. I'm not going to indulge in all your wishes. Now, when you're three years old, that means candy. Uh, When at junior high, that means camps. You can't go to soccer camp and field hockey camp and basketball camp and on and on and on. Um, When you're 16 or 17 or 18, that means cars. Uh, When you're 18 and older, that might mean college. Not going to indulge you in everything you want. And just as a footnote, if you want me to go on a rant, ask me what I think about you buying your kids college, paying for it completely. Some people know what I think about this. I'm not going to indulge my children in all of their wishes. It's not to... It's not in their best interest. And don't buy them, buy them, buy them. One of the things I always told engaged couples is uh, when the kids come along, always buy them less than you're able to. Buy them less than you can afford to. It's tempting. We we love our children and we want to give them nice things. We love to see the smile on their faces when we give them presents at Christmas, when we're in 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 Target and they're begging for this or that. We We love to please them. We don't want to hear them crying and complaining and throwing a hissy fit and target uh, makes us look bad. And uh, oh, by the way, that's that's a promotional for next Sunday sermon. The gospel will not idolize you either as parents. Right. So anyway, where where was I? So don't buy them everything, all right? Don't indulge their every whim. Um, don't be easily intimidated by your children, what they say to you. So every parent here who's had a child who's probably f- at least five has probably had this experience. 
where they, your child stands in front of you, might, might be as young as three, four, five. And they screw up their face and they squint their eyes. They may even stick their tongue out at you and they say the three words you hoped you'd never hear from them. I hate you. See, everybody's experienced that. I hate you. And usually this is devastating for the first time parent. It's like, you, you, you go in your prayer class, and you say, God, what have I done wrong? How have I failed these poor children? And God says, yeah, that's probably not the last time you're going to hear that. And, and they probably don't hate you. But even if they do, they're going to get over that. You're not going to hear your 14-year-old say, I hate you. At least you shouldn't. Well, that's another sermon. If your 14-year-old says that, you, there's some homework that got missed between 5 and 14 that you'll need to, to start with. But don't let that intimidate you. But then you, as you get older, uh, as the children get older, you're going to hear things like this. You don't trust me. You don't trust me. And the main mistake that parents make at this point is they they fall all over themselves to convince their children that they do. When they don't and they shouldn't. There is a reason that God gives kids who are 15 and 16 and 12 and 8 parents. Parents, listen, if you are a child, your parents have been given to you as a favor by God. God loves you, so he's going to give you parents. Now, now I understand sometimes your parents aren't all they should be. And sometimes parents are, they just really foul up badly. But they're still a gift. They're still a gift. It's interesting, if you remember the other week, I, I referenced this book, the uh, Judith Wallerstein, The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce. And one of the things that she was surprised to find out is how much better the children whose parents stayed together even though it was a bad marriage how much better they did even in some cases there was abuse how much better those kids did than the than the kids of the parents who split up it's amazing and so we understand that parents don't all get it right. We don't do a great job, but parent, kids, your parents have been given to you as a gift. And so when you parents when you hear them say you don't trust me, you should feel free to say you're right, I don't. Love you, but I don't trust you. And it's not because you are less trustworthy than the than your siblings. It's not because you are less trustworthy than the kids. Out of all the garden spot students, you are untrustworthy. No. You're all untrustworthy. Why? Remember last week's sermon? Because you are all born as sinners. And so I am trying to, my, your mother is trying to, we are trying to help you get you to a point where you have enough of our input and influence that hopefully you're going to make mostly good choices going forward. But in the meantime, we're going to help you make some of those choices because we still don't trust that you have adequate experience, adequate knowledge, adequate wisdom. 
going to be a day when we're going to let you fly. But up to this point, we're going to draw some hard lines. And then for these years, we're going to pull back and let you make some mistakes that won't be totally destructive. And then at some point here, the, everything's going to be off. And you're really making your own decisions. And a similar statement that, and by the way, your kids know that you are uncomfortable responding to that statement. You don't trust me. They know you're uncomfortable with that. And so they're quick to use it. But if you say, yeah, I don't trust you, you can move on to other things then. Here's one. Everyone else my age has a, or everyone else my age does X, Y, Z. And the message they're communicating is, you are very weird parents. And I can't believe God gave you to me. You're hopeless. It's like you were born in 1712. And again, they think that the statement like this is going to throw you off as a parent. And it often does. Parents are are they're scrambling, trying to make sure that their kids believe that they're up to speed. So I have some Bible verses for you to share with your children. So when they say to you, I can't believe you won't let me get me a phone. I'm the only seven-year-old that doesn't have a phone in my school. <laughs> I don't know what the right age is. So, and I can't find it in the Bible. I've looked. But here, this is, this is usable for that. Matthew chapter uh, 7, and so it's right from the words of Jesus. They can't say, well, that's some ancient prophet that doesn't know anything. This is Jesus who knows everything. He says this in verse 13 and 14, Matthew 7. So again, the context is your child is saying, I'm the only child like this. So everybody else is. You can enter God's kingdom only through the, <laughs> the narrow gate. All of a sudden, it's not so bad to be one of two people in the universe who don't have a phone at seven. Because after all, you can only get into God's kingdom through the narrow gate. In fact, the highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Now, this is, I'm only saying this partially tongue-in-cheek. Because after all, what are we trying to do with our children? What did we talk about last week? We are trying to point them. We can't make a decision for them, but we're trying to point them to Jesus, that they become worshipers to Christ. And so, of necessity, they are going to be part of a minority not a majority. Again, saying yes to God sometimes means saying, means saying no to our children. Secondly, saying yes to God sometimes means insisting on a yes with children. Uh, just a couple of thoughts here of things that I think um, surface in Scripture and that we have to wrestle with in life. Training our kids to work, that... I think I'm going to do a series before I retire on work. Um, the Bible has a lot to say about it. I'm a product of the first generation that thought work was not cool or thought that work was not working was how life should be. 
And we've kind of seen a reiteration of that about every 20 years or so. So the 60s and then the 80s, and now we're seeing it again in the last 10 years ago. And one of the things that is closely associated with a uh, growing disdain for work is an, a sense of entitlement. It's a sense of entitlement that seems to go with that. So uh, I encourage you to teach your children to work. At a young age, I got a text from my one son a couple nights ago. He said, Dad, what, time, what, what uh, age did you start giving us an allowance? I said, I think it was about four because we started assigning chores to our kids about, about four, three or four actually. Small chores, things that they could do. And then we would add to those things over the years and uh, give them allowance if, if they uh, completed, completed them. Uh, one of the parents uh, on the way out today said, thanks for talking about work. I've been badgering my 18-year-old to get a, get a job. So I mean, you're welcome. <laughs> but train them to work. Give them chores to do around the house. Uh, chores aren't going to kill them and it actually is going to be a blessing to them. And then when they're, you know, in their teens, encourage them to get a job. And I realize that's not a popular opinion today. Uh, but really, there's nothing in Scripture, again, that says your child has to become a, uh, a college volleyball star. But there is a lot of conversation in the Scripture about having a good work ethic. Train them to work. Secondly, train them to love the Lord. So that means, uh, yes, taking them to, to public worship services, encouraging them or sending them to Sunday school, having family worship in the home, uh, getting them when they're small to memorize scripture, that's when they can do it best. That's when they have the greatest capability for that. Uh, showing them and doing this with them. Serving, teaching our kids to serve. That's one of the big areas that I feel like uh, we failed as, as parents. As, uh, serving with our children, teaching them to serve others and, and doing it with them. Uh, getting them involved in youth ministry and other things like that. And lastly, saying yes to God sometimes means insisting on yes with children when they want the answer to be no. Think of things like, um, if, if God calls you to move, and you're not even sure why, you just have a real clear sense that God has said, I want you to go, I, I want you to move maybe across the other side of the county, maybe to in, in the city, maybe to another state. Or maybe he asks you to take another job and maybe it's a job that's going to mean a lot less family income but you seem confident that God has directed you this way. If you sit down with your children and they find out they're going to be in a different school district next year, it's not, it may not go well with them. Uh, if you feel called to the ministry, you know, my kids were two and four when I felt God calling me to the ministry and then when we moved to Chicago from here, uh, they were seven and nine and two. And they weren't really excited about doing that. And if you sit your children down for their input in situations like that, they're not going to want to go. Are you going to obey God if you're confident he's spoken? Are you going to obey him or are you going to submit to their wishes? Again, we're talking about whether or not we worship God first or worship our children. Now, some of these things, you might be saying, wow, I, that's not what our home looks like. If I wanted to make changes, what would I do? Well, the first thing is you're going to have to be like, 
Eli wasn't. You're going to have to stand up and recognize that you are the parent that God has anointed and appointed you to be the parent in the home, not your children. And then you live out the power that you have been given in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit in you. He will enable you to do all that he calls you to do. And if you believe some of these things he's calling you to do, God will enable you to get alone with the Lord in your prayer closet. Say, God, help, help me, help us. I don't know what to do. And wonder of wonders, he will. He really will. You have the body of Christ. We're here to help. Brothers and sisters that would love to help support you, pray with you, if nothing else. The, the last question that I want us to wrestle with as parents is really an elaboration of the first question. Does Jesus matter most? Does Jesus matter most? You see, your children are gifts to you. They're not saviors. They're not satisfiers. That's Jesus' role. Children are gifts. They're not saviors and not satisfiers. Again, Tim Keller says, if we look for some created thing to give us the meaning, the hope, a happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. In other words, if you love your children in the kind of unhealthy, sinister way that we've been talking about where you are willing to say no to God so you can say yes to them, it's going to backfire sooner or later. It's going to backfire. They can't, your children cannot be gods to you. They can't uphold the God's status. Sooner or later, they're going to they're crumble and fall. And Jesus himself gave us this warning, Luke chapter 14, 26, and we'll wrap up. He says, if you want to be my disciple, and then he weighs in on where the, where the role of the family is if you want to be his disciple. If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison your father your mother your wife your children brothers and sisters yes even in your own life otherwise you cannot be my disciple listen Jesus is always calling us from some things so that we can be with him so what do I do if I make some changes with these children, is that enough? Mm -mm. The end of the day, what often is the problem in the home is the same problem we have in our lives. And that is, we just love God weekly. I don't mean W-E-E-K, I mean W-E-A-K, weekly. In other words, even for us, we're talking about our kids not getting so busy that they don't have time to uh, seek the Lord. What about us? It, it, it's, well, let me, I'm going to quote um, Keller again. If you marry someone expecting them to be like a God, it's only in inevitable that they will disappoint you. It's not that you should try to love your spouse less, but rather that you should know and love God more. And you say, I have, to, I have to run out of the house for work at 10 of 7. I don't have time to get in the Word. Sure you do. It's going to require getting up a little earlier. You know, we used to, when my, my kids were small, we would always arrive at church 10 minutes late. Always. I mean, it was like clockwork. Boom, 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 boom. There's the Roar family, 10 after 9. 
And one day it dawned on me, you know what? If I got up 10 minutes earlier, I bet we could get there at nine. And you know what? It worked. If we really want to pursue God, it's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to take some callous knees. We get on our knees before God. We talk, cry our hearts to him. We listen to him in here. We get with the body of Christ and we pray together and we worship together and we sing together. Pursuing God is not a part-time job. It's a full-time one. And the glory of it is that you become, as a result, a better parent. You become a better husband and wife. You become a better friend. You become a better brother and sister. You become a better elder. You become a better uh, servant in the compassion ministry. You become a better teacher. All of that. Why? Because it's no longer you but Christ. Not I but Christ. You want to love your kids the best? Love him the most. Father, may that be true in my life. May that be true in our lives, not just with our children, but with our jobs and our careers and with our spouses, with our money and all of that. That what we would treasure most would be the one who's given us life and the one who's given us holy life and the one who's given us future life, the one who's given us hope in a future. In Jesus' name, amen.